Hello, and welcome to Siren Coffee and Science, a series of conversations on hot topics in health and social care integration, brought to you by the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at the University of California, San Francisco. Today's episode was originally recorded as a live web event and has been lightly edited for this podcast. Thanks, everybody, for joining us on this Friday afternoon. My name is Becca Fom, and I am the Director of Communications and Policy with the Healthcare Anchor Network. And I'm really excited to be interviewing Michael Kaprowski today to really learn and share more about the work that he and the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign are working on with healthcare advocacy groups. So Mike, just wanted to ask you to introduce yourself and also talk about what brought you to this work. Sure. Thanks. It's exciting to be here today, talk with you all. So my official title is I'm the director of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. And this was a campaign that was founded by the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, the National Alliance on Homelessness, and Children's Health Watch, which is based out of Boston Medical Center. And our goal really in starting this campaign was to expand housing advocacy to other sectors. Housing, it's central to so many other national priorities, whether it's health, education, uh, civil rights, climate, food security, um, you name it, uh, housing is somewhat connected to those sectors. And so kind of my arrival into housing advocacy uh, was kind of a, a multi-sector one myself. Early in my career, I was a, a military officer, and then I got out and I went into education reform. I worked in Tennessee. I worked in Dallas, Texas. I was the chief of innovation for the Dallas school system and tried to work on the, the lowest performing schools in the district and in the state. Also look at desegregating schools. Our schools are still very segregated by race and class. And through that experience, the brick wall that I always ran into was housing, unaffordable housing. When parents are spending all their disposable income on rent, there's less left over for extracurricular activities for their kids and learning programs and things like that. When there's unstable housing, kids are bouncing around from apartment to apartment. Maybe they're getting evicted. Bouncing around from home to home means they're bouncing around from school to school. And that means different teachers and different curriculum. And that's a very significant learning challenge for those kids. There was also the issue of housing segregation that our neighborhood in, in many of our cities is still very segregated by race and class. And therefore, kids attend schools that are very segregated by race and class. And there's mountains of research that show that segregated schools are not the best learning environments for kids. So this issue of housing kept coming up time and again when I was in the education sector. And I sort of realized that if you want to improve education outcomes, you got to improve housing. So I started a, a local nonprofit in Dallas that looked at the city's housing policy, and then I came into this uh, national position. And so, yeah, the, the, the improvements that are needed in education require housing improvements, but you could say the same thing for health. You could say the same thing for food security or climate or racial equity. So housing is just tied to all of those things. So we've built a pretty broad coalition through the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign. We have groups like Healthcare Anchor Network, obviously, has been a, been a big part of our campaign for a while. We have groups like the American Academy of Pediatrics. We have the Food Research and Action Center. We have the Natural Resources Defense Council, which is a climate change group. We have the NAACP. We have the National Education Association, which is the largest teachers union. We have Catholic Charities USA. The list goes on and on. We have about 100 national organizations involved in the campaign. And nearly all of them are not housing organizations. And that's the, that's the point of our campaign is we're focused on housing policy issues, 
But the face of the campaign is a non-housing face. It's, it's groups from all different sectors. And we're trying to send the signal to policymakers that this is bigger than housing alone, that, that whether you're in healthcare, whether you're in education, whether you're in uh, climate change, housing is something you have to pay attention to. Having worked with you over the past several years on this issue, I'm just really excited for us to be having this conversation as part of the Siren Coffee and Sciences program. And as you know, today's conversation is the fourth of six of these coffee and science events on topics related to alignment and advocacy, uh, the roles that healthcare can play to address social needs at the community level. So for the next half hour, I'm really excited to be talking with you about why and how healthcare organizations should engage in federal advocacy on issues of housing affordability and social determinants. So, Mike, this is such a timely conversation given what is happening with the federal budget reconciliation. We know you're really steeped in that, so we really appreciate your joining us. So why do we need the healthcare sector to advocate on the housing and social determinants of health issues? There, there's a lot of reasons why. I'll give two big ones. One is, this is true just sort of across the universe, is that when you have partners from different sectors and different areas of expertise, it enriches your activities, right? So I think there's always power in a diversity of expertise. And so, for example, when our campaign first launched, we were making all these fact sheets, trying to demonstrate to policymakers how housing is connected to health. We relied really heavily on the knowledge of our health sector partners to help us with framing, to help us with messaging, to help us sort of tease out what's the most powerful research that we can showcase showing how housing is connected to health. And we found that, you know, the healthcare organizations were aware of powerful research that was unknown to me and and my staff. They helped us incorporate language and messages that they knew would resonate with healthcare professionals. I don't speak the lingo of of a healthcare professional, but our health partners do. And so they can help me with framing and messaging. And I always ask them, how can we talk about this in a way that will resonate with your sector? And this type of collaboration just isn't, I mean, it's not possible if you don't have healthcare groups at the table. And I think the same process happened with our, our education partners and our food partners and more. So I think this whole concept around having unusual suspects, quote unquote, uh, having these unusual suspects in your efforts kind of help mainstream your communication so that people who are not experts in housing policy can sort of understand the message. And then from an advocacy standpoint, I really can't speak enough to the power of having healthcare groups weighing in on specific housing policy issues. This piques the interests of policymakers in ways that traditional housing groups can't do alone. So when housing advocates say, well, we need to expand the voucher program and we need to expand the housing trust fund, Hill members expect us to say that. (laughs) It's sort of what we do. Uh, We're we're asking for for more resources for housing. But when you have an endorsement of these policies, say the expanded voucher program, when the healthcare anchor network uh, endorses that particular policy, it sends a very clear signal to policymakers that this has major implications for health. Otherwise, the healthcare anchor network wouldn't be weighing in on it. Similarly, you know, when you have an endorsement by the NAACP, it highlights the implications for racial equity. When you have an endorsement from the National Education Association, it shows policymakers that this has implications for student achievement. When the Food Research and Action Center is on board, it shows that there's implications for food security. So this grabs the attention of policymakers in a really powerful way. Just think you're, you're in a Hill office and, you know, you're getting these sign-on letters all day long and, and you see a sign-on letter that says we need, you know, 
X billions of dollars to expand vouchers and we need X billions of dollars to expand the, uh, the housing trust fund. And then they look at the list of signatories and very few of them are housing organizations. It's again, Catholic Charities. It's, it's, uh, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics. It's the Healthcare Anchor Network. It's the Natural Resources Defense Council. That is very, very powerful for policymakers. We've heard that time and again from all sorts of Hill offices, that it's very powerful to see that. And it also, I think, gives us new inroads to policymakers. If you're in the housing world, you often lament that, oh, this certain elected official, they just don't care about housing. They have other issues. Well, chances are that if a policymaker has prioritized an issue in their agenda, housing is deeply connected to that issue. And so if a policymaker is primarily concerned with education, then we can deploy our education partners to explain to them why they must also care about housing. So it's incredibly powerful from an advocacy perspective when we're shoulder to shoulder with people that don't necessarily specialize in in housing policy issues, but they know housing is important to accomplishing their own goals. And I think all those those organizations that I've been uh, talking about, they would all tell you that they can't accomplish their own goals if the people they serve aren't in stable, affordable housing. Yeah, it's so true, Mike. I, I, I've i experienced what you've just said so many times. And even last week, I emailed a letter on behalf of the Healthcare Anchor Network supporting housing programs in the budget reconciliation and sent it to the speaker's office and the Senate Majority Leader's key staff. And then like literally within a few minutes, I got a response email like, thanks so much, Baka. I really appreciate this. And I was like, wow, all those years that I would lobby on my own sector's issue, I just never got yeah. that kind of response. Yeah. And Because they you expect know. you to say it on your issue. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Which certainly makes our Healthcare Anchor Network members happy to see that their voice is coming through. So on that, we know that, as you've just said, healthcare voices can be immensely helpful on social determinants of health issues, what can they do? Like, how can these healthcare institutions participate? I mean, there's a lot of ways. I would bucket them into two themes. One is general awareness building, and then two is policy advocacy. So first on the kind of general awareness building, if you're in a a healthcare organization, I think you can help spread the word that good housing is good health. You know, you can do that in a number of ways, right? There's blogs, there's hosting panel discussions like we're doing right now. There's publishing op-eds, there's doing a podcast, there's most organizations have a weekly memo to their members or to their network, whatever you want to call it. And you can include something in there around how good housing is good health, whatever. The the precise mechanism is sort of up to uh, the organization. But I think there's a lot of awareness building that we need to do. And there's there's so much research that ties housing to health. There's a few that I always talk about. Uh, households with poor quality housing have like 50% higher odds of an asthma-related emergency department visit. Families that are behind on rent are more likely to compromise living expenses to pay for medical bills and vice versa. They have greater food insecurities. Young kids and families who live in unstable housing are 20% more likely to be hospitalized than those who are not in unstable housing. There's families in affordable housing spend five times more on healthcare. There's also cost estimates. Children's Health Watch out of Boston Medical Center. This is something that I talk about a lot. Uh, they've estimated that we're going to spend $111 billion over the next 10 years in avoidable healthcare costs because people aren't stably housed. Those are the types of things that we just need to raise more awareness about. Again, we can do that through blogs, panel discussions, whatever, but I think those are the types of things we need to raise awareness of. Again, coming from clinicians and healthcare professionals, it's incredibly powerful. We have 
Dr. Megan Sandell, who, who works at Boston Medical Center, was one of the key founders of our campaign. She's a practicing pediatrician and she, she works a lot with uh, underweight babies. And she says, you know, a lot of times I'm, I'm sitting in the doctor's office and the prescription I really need to write for this kid is not something they stock at Walgreens and it's a stable home. And when, when Megan Sandell delivers that message, it's way more powerful than if I would say it. So I think that that's one way. It's just general awareness building. And two, if your organization can get involved in housing advocacy, I would really in- encourage that. If your organization is more dipping toes in the water and just starting to have this conversation, I think the awareness building is a great first step. Uh, if your organization has been having this conversation for a while and is ready to take the next step, I think getting into actual uh, housing advocacy is really important. And we can talk more about specific examples or stories of of healthcare getting involved in housing advocacy a little bit more later, because there's a lot of examples that we can talk about. Yeah, I think that would be great if we could talk about some examples, Mike, because I know that in talking in working with our healthcare and care network members, the health systems and hospitals run the gambit, right? There are those who are like Megan, Sandell, and BMC actively engaged in advocacy and on housing every year. And then there are those that just their GR folks just have not, are not really familiar with the issues at all. So that'd be great if you could give some examples of um, how healthcare has been involved. Sure. Well, let me do, I'll do the recent examples because this is what everybody's top of mind right now is this whole reconciliation legislation. (laughs) If you've turned on the news in the past month, you know what I'm talking about. So on a few weeks ago, the campaign sent a letter to Congress urging robust housing investments in the Build Back Better Act. So the Build Back Better Act is basically the reconciliation package that everybody's been talking about. The $3.5 trillion package has a lot of different names. But this, the Build Back Better Act is is probably the best opportunity for major housing investments in forever. It, it, It might be the best opportunity in my lifetime. I mean, we just don't know, but it's a huge opportunity. And we've been pushing for three big priorities in the Build Back Better package expanding rental assistance to serve an additional million households, repairing the nation's public housing infrastructure. Thousands of units fall offline every year in disrepair because Congress hasn't invested money in in repairing public housing, so units are just falling offline. And then also investing in the National Housing Trust Fund to, to build and preserve new affordable homes for people. So, you know, the challenge is the overall package is going to shrink. We've heard about Joe Manchin and Christian Cinema, and how they're not game for $3.5 trillion. So the package is probably going to shrink to somewhere around $1.5 trillion, $2 trillion. There's a whole hullabaloo about the top line number. But basically what, what we've been trying to do is make sure that if the overall package is going to shrink, that, that housing doesn't take a, a disproportionately big hit. So in this letter to Congress, we had 43 signatories from leading national organizations from a bunch of different sectors. American Academy of Pediatrics, Healthcare Anchor Network, Catholic Charities, Cleveland Clinic, National Education Association, NAACP, the National League of Cities, and so on. And, and actually, we've, we've done other letters in the past, like around the eviction moratorium. If you remember early on in the pandemic, the, there was a federal eviction moratorium. And that letter was just exclusively healthcare groups. So we had, you know, America's Essential Hospitals and Catholic Health Association and uh, Dignity Health and uh, the National Alliance on Mental Illness and Nationwide Children uh, Nationwide Children's Hospital and RWJ Barnabas Health and the National Nurse Led Care Consortium. So it was exclusively a, a healthcare sign-on letter. So the sign-on letters is really a big way. It's you know a show of force to show that we're all behind these priorities. We've also had our health friends join us in actual Hill meetings. So when we meet with a particular congressperson, we invite our healthcare friends to join us and, and talk about why it's important to them. And like uh, Bikha mentioned, we've had health organizations send individualized letters to Congress. Um, 
So those are those are really powerful. Uh, again, you know, it's one thing for policymakers to hear abstractly that good housing is good health, but it's quite another thing for them to see. Wait, the American Academy of Pediatrics wants thirty-seven billion dollars in the National Housing Trust Fund. Okay, there's broad support for this, and there's specific support for this, and it works. The Build Back Better cuts that are happening right now, and you know, we're knee-deep in negotiations. There's lots of important priorities that are competing right now, and you know, housing is probably going to get some cuts along with everything else. But but I think we're holding our own right now, and there's just a, a lot of competing priorities. And and I've heard from many Hill offices that. You know, we've heard a lot about housing and that is having a big impact on these negotiations. But I'd be interested to hear your take on this. I mean, you've done a lot of uh, affordable housing advocacy in the past couple of years. So maybe you could talk a little bit more about what you all have done. Yeah, I think that the start off is, you know, Mike, you have been such a great resource to us. And I think for healthcare systems to know that organizations like yours are really available to provide the expertise, the strategy advice, the materials. And so that is one thing that the Healthcare Anchor Network has really benefited from. We've held three Housing for Health policy days on the Hill this year in the last two years. And we've been able to hold hundreds of meetings with congressional members from our health systems. And it really has been a situation where uh, many of the um, congressional members and their staff are initially a little surprised that these healthcare experts right. are here. <laughs> like, yep. like yep. they oftentimes when our scheduler calls them to schedule the meetings, um, they'll be like, "Oh, you want to meet with a healthcare right. you know, legislative yeah. person, right?" In the wrong stream. What are you doing? <laughs> right. Yeah. And we have to really say, "No, no, no. We want to talk with the, the healthcare person and the housing person, please." And and then we yeah. have to choose. We'd like to meet with the housing person since they're the person that is the expert in this, uh, you know, on these areas and yeah. and weighing in. So it's it's really interesting to see how that works. Um, but we but our members, we the reason why Han members wanted to do advocacy on social determinism and housing is because we really wanted to hit at a work at the systems level. If we aren't putting healthcare voices at the table to keep affordable housing and, and build on it, then that's going to not, that's going to reverse all the great work that we're doing at the local level and in the hospital. So they really wanted to, to have systems level impact. And that's been really exciting. And um, some of them have then continued to do more state level work connecting to this state level members, including your campaign members. Also wanted to go to a great question that Anna Steves Reese asked, because I really think this is something that has helped with our advocacy efforts as well. And that's how can we best use healthcare data for advocacy? More and more health systems are collecting information about the housing stability of their members. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I think that's really crucial. There needs to be more data collection around this so that we can learn more. I mean, we know, we know that the connections are there, but oftentimes when you really dive into the research, there are some limitations because we haven't been collecting data on the front end. Critically important for, for health systems to, to do more of. But I think that could help us make our case a heck of a lot better than, than we can today. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that a couple of our members, our Han members have done is as part of their community health needs assessments, housing has come up as a big community need. So they include that in their discussions with congressional members. And then so many of them are also engaged in housing development or supporting housing groups at the local level. So we have members that will go into these meetings and say, you know what, we put forward X amount of money as part of our hospital investment funds 
to this affordable housing project. And the other part of the funding came from, you know, the home program, the federal housing tax credit program, you know, housing vouchers. That's what yeah. has made it all possible to have this affordable housing unit in your congressional district. So I think just having that data just from examples, it has been really helpful too. Yeah, I've heard from so many folks in the health field that have actually engaged on social determinants of health advocacy, that it makes so much sense for them to do from the healthcare side, that it, this isn't just altruism, right? There's there's a self-interest here, and there's a lot of benefits to doing it. Because, I mean, you can, you can talk more intelligently to the, the benefits from the healthcare side of, of engaging in this type of advocacy. So um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear more about that. We really stress that the undervalue-based care, that health organizations will really thrive under that system if they are able to address the upstream determinants. And our members have really found that it's been a great opportunity to also partner and build trust with community groups because these groups are saying, oh, you're doing advocacy on housing. Wow. You know, that's that's mm-hmm. impressive that yeah. you care enough about affordable housing to bring mm-hmm. your voice to that table. And really with congressional members, we've had staff, as I mentioned before, and congressional members say that they were just kind of shocked that these hospitals and health systems cared enough, uh, right. you know, about, about community level mm-hmm. uh, factors. One of the questions, though, how can we funding opportunities to secure this work? And I just wanted to say that I know that with with the Han members, it's really they're just using their staff, like having their government relations folks, their community benefit folks participate in the policy days and participate on our calls. It's they they kind of see it as, you know, hey, this is part of your lobbying and advocacy efforts. Right. Yeah. It's part of the core work. Our partners that we have in the campaign, we're not providing them with any additional resources. They've just sort of internalized it within their organization that housing is important to our own goals and therefore it's it's a core part of our work. And so they, you know, they use existing staff to participate in our steering committee meetings and our advocacy days because they realize that these things are inextricably linked. It's not an additional project to take on. It's just part of the core work. And I think that's, a, yeah, that's a really important point. Is there a call to action that you would ask the viewers to take? Yeah, there is. So it's largely around Build Back Better, which is what I talked about. It's really good timing to have this conversation. This is like a, a really make or break moment for the Build Back Better negotiations. We are hearing that negotiations are happening right now around this package and that you know there, there might be a deal announced here any, any minute, any day now. So it's really, really important that, that Congress hear from as many people as possible. So if you go to opportunityhome.org, opportunityhome.org, and you click on the Take Action button at the top of the page, it'll take you to a place where you can send a pre-formatted letter to your members of Congress. So you'll just go in and you'll type in your street address and it'll automatically go to your two senators and your one house member. And you can also edit the language so you can say whatever it is that you want to say, but there's sort of a pre-formatted template there to help you out around what's what are the asks. And it's focused on, on housing investments, which are badly needed in this negotiation. That's all the time we have today. Just want to, again, express gratitude to Mike for his insights. And the next Coffee and Science is in two weeks on November 5th, and we'll feature a conversation between Nancy Berner-Wong from Change Lab Solutions and Lauren Poor from Healthcare Without Harm on using procurement to support sustainable local food systems. So we hope you will all join us then, and thank you again. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Siren Coffee and Science Series. 
a project of the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at UCSF. Raven Forest Communications does our editing and sound design. Susan Shepard designed our cover art, and Aurelien Jukla composed our music. Laura Gottlieb, Dylan Gonzalez, and Yuri Cartier, that's me, produced the podcast and the live event series. Join us for our next live event by visiting sirenetwork.ucsf.edu. Questions or comments? Email us at siren at ucsf.edu. And lastly, let it be known that the views and opinions of the participants on this podcast do not necessarily state or reflect those of the Regents of the University of California, UCSF, UCSF Medical Center, or any entities or units thereof. Take care.